Hey, it's in a book. Welcome back. I'm Lawrence Rouse. I am in Raleigh, North Carolina. If you notice the somewhat hushed tone of my voice, it is because I am holding my two-week-old baby girl. She's helping with the podcast this episode. Um, the book we will survey this fortnight is called American Desert. It was written by Percival Everett. Uh, he is one of my very, very favorite authors. Um, you can find him on Twitter, uh, interestingly enough, at not Percival Everett, uh, which is a play on the title of one of his uh, very excellent novels, uh, I Am Not Sidney Poitier, or, or perhaps the title was Not Sidney Poitier. At any rate, uh, I won't talk too much about Sidney Poitier or Not Sidney Poitier. Uh, in order that we can talk about American Desert and the rest of the show that we have in store for you. We are interviewing a very good friend of my wife and, and a very good friend of the family this uh, episode. She was in town uh, from her very busy life as a scholar and activist uh, to visit her, her mother and her grandmother recently. And she stopped by and, and we were lucky enough to to grab her for an interview. I always murder her name, so I'm not gonna say it right now. Uh, we'll talk about it in the next segment um, when I have a chance to uh, to re-familiarize myself with it. I call her by uh, a name that she went by earlier in her life, in her childhood, uh, uh, Carolina. Um, but um, she uh, has since uh, uh, gone by the, uh, her given name. So at any rate, um, we have the interview in store, we have this wonderful book, American Desert, and we have current events where I'll talk about the wonderful book that I just finished and the very, very good book that I am currently reading. Uh, so, uh, thanks again for dropping by to uh, see what we have in store for you this fortnight, and uh, I'll see you after the break. It's in a book. Bye-bye. So, current events for this fortnight include, of course, the uh, book The Craft of Fiction by Percy Lubbock. Uh, I am still very, very slowly heading toward completion of it. Um, sort of a fits and starts uh, sort of thing, but it, it's definitely uh, not something I'm willing to put down at this point. Of course, we talked a little bit in the last podcast about Union Atlantic by Adam Hazlitt. I was just getting started on it at the time, and I am happy to say that I quickly finished it. It was a really, really good read. Um, Adam Hazlitt is probably one of those authors, I would say, who... As you read him, you just wonder what you've done with your life in that you you haven't been able to amass the the command of uh, of, of facts and, and ideas and, and uh, memes that that he's able to assemble in, in, into uh, his character's thoughts and, and actions. Uh, Union Atlantic is is a really good book. It's about uh, the financial crisis. Um, that we recently experienced uh, uh, nationally, I suppose, but um, 
very, very much personalized through the actions and uh, and encounters of uh, four or five characters, four or five main characters. Um, and he's really able to do some uh, some wonderful things uh, with the book. I won't I won't tell you about it too much. Uh, it's set in 2010, I believe. Uh, I really highly recommend it, though. It's it's a great read, and uh, and hopefully someone out there will uh, will check it out and, uh, and maybe get in touch with me on on uh, how much you loved it. So uh, I have moved on to a book called Absurdistan. Uh, in the last uh, podcast, I, I had a little. A little trouble with the pronunciation of uh, the name of Gary Steingart. Uh, he being one of the people, I believe, who uh, gave a little blurb for Adam Hazlitt's book. So, uh, being that I own a couple of, uh, of Gary Steingart's books, I thought I would go ahead and, and dive into one. The one I chose is Absurdistan, and it's really, really good uh, so far. So, um, just a little bit about uh, Gary Steingart from Wikipedia. Gary Steingart, born Igor Semyonovich Steingart, July 5th, 1972, is an American writer born in Leningrad, USSR. Much of his work is satirical and relies on the invention of elaborately fictitious yet somehow familiar places and times. So uh, obviously we'll probably talk a little more about Absurdistan in the next podcast when I am sure I will have completed it. And uh, it's, it's somewhat uh, apropos that he's a satirist in that uh, American Desert by Percival Everett. Our selection for this podcast uh, is, is highly satirical. And uh, since I neglected to during the intro, I'm going to read you a couple of blurbs from the back of American Desert uh, before we before we move into our interview uh, as well I will uh, will let you know that uh, Carolina's professional name is Cara Cara Andrade uh, I know I said that wrong again uh, forgive me Cara and uh, you will hear all about her uh, if, in her own words uh, during the interview so very quickly uh, Percival Everett um, American Desert is Percival Everett's best novel in years, uh, witty, savage, and explosive, a brilliant, barbed work from one of America's best and most iconoclastic satirists. That's by Madison Smart Bell, author of All Souls Rising. Uh, keep in mind that that was written in 2004 or somewhere thereabout. That's when uh, this novel was published. Uh, I'm sure he's, he's published many, many, and in fact, I know having read, read most of them, um, other equally good novels in, in the uh, year since. So um, I'm just going to pick one more here. Let's go for this one. Uh, wow. Percival Everett's new book, American Desert, is as brilliant, sharp, and strange as lightning. A wild and visionary tale of American obsession, it has at its core the central question. What can a flawed man do amidst a landscape of craziness? The answer is heartening and grounds the satiric fantasy in faith in our real possibilities. This is Everett's genius, an intellect's vision of despair written from the deeply hopeful heart. And that was by Josephine Humphreys, Arthur of Nowhere Else on Earth. So um, that will 
cut it for us for current events for this fortnight. Uh, up next is our interview with uh, Cara Andrade, Andrade, um, and we will uh, we will then read slash hear a little bit of American Desert. So, see you after the break. All right, so uh, I am very, very pleased to welcome into our studio, my studio today, uh, a good friend of my family, a good friend of my wife, uh, Carolina. Um, I'm going to let Carolina say her last name because I'm, I'm a murderer of last names. You can chime in any second with it now. Go ahead. Sure, it's Andrade. Andrade. That's so funny because I knew it was Andrade, and yet I've been saying something else like the whole time you've been here. Like, like Andrade, like the race car driver? Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, so, I'm not related to him at all. <laughs> I've been saying something else in my head the whole time you've been here, though, and like I've been missaying it in my head, and so I've been, I was nervous about saying it. So as long as you don't call me other names, I'm okay. Okay, okay, good. <laughs> I won't call you any other names. So um, I'm gonna let you tell a little bit about yourself before we really get started here, um, because I'm really excited. Carolina uh, has a podcast of her own. Uh, she runs it with her husband Brad, and I'm just gonna let her tell you all about it right now. And, uh, and I'm going to shut up and do that. So go. Great. Well, thanks for having me. I really appreciate being on the on the podcast. Um, so my my name, I also have a, a writing name, which is Cara Andrade. And I am a journalist. I'm a multimedia journalist. I do a lot of freelance work and I'm also an entrepreneur. So I run my own nonprofit and a for-profit a citizen mm. news network in Central America. It's called Agua Central. Mm-hmm. And so I work in Guatemala, Honduras, and all the other Central American countries. I, I train people how to do what the work the reporters do right finding wow. finding information that they need that is important in their lives verifying information public records anything that has to do with um like our work to become more engaged citizens so i do that and i also um do a lot of like digital literacy work and right. i work with um a lot of entrepreneurs to connect people who are coming through our projects and our programs to these opportunities so that's that's what i do as a full-time job and yeah, i wow. Yeah, I have a one of the one of the things that I have and I love to do is I have my own podcast. It's called Mesa Publica. Uh-huh. It's it's both it's bilingual. Mesa Publica means a public roundtable. Right. It's kind of playing off the idea of a public square where right. people, which is how people used to get their news and their information before someone would come to the public square and make an announcement about things happening in the community, and that's how people would come together and find out about things. And so my podcast. Um, we're dealing with Central America, events, news, cultural, like very similar to what you're doing too. Well, it well, I mean, we sounds way better. Well, you can, you can keep expanding. I mean, we started a lot with like different reviews and then we did, you know, profiles of people, you know, really interesting people. And so we've had some pretty cool results. Yeah. Well, this is my first celebrity interview. Uh, so I'm, I'm pretty excited about that. So, um, okay. Well, uh, just to, uh, I mean, because... Carolina's been here. She came to uh, to visit, and I, I uh, begged her and talked her into doing this interview for my podcast. Uh, so we just had some lunch, and uh, it's funny we were talking earlier with uh, with my sister in law and her husband about what you do, and uh, we were attempting to describe it. Um, and of course, nothing nothing uh, uh, so much as as the way you described it. But uh, I'll have to make sure and play this for him so he can have a fuller understanding of what you do. Um, so our podcast uh, is about books. So uh, pretty much, uh, you know, very personal. I talk about uh, books that I've read and, and hopefully uh, eventually I'll be talking with people all over the city of Raleigh about the books that they've read. 
Um, but everyone who comes in for this interview answers the same five questions about books. And uh, of course, I, I tell them beforehand that you're free to expound. Uh, as long as you start talking about a book, you can take it anywhere you want to go. So, uh, <laughs> so we're going to do that right now. The first question is this. Um, it, it's a busy world these days. How do you find the time to read? I find the time to learn. Mm -hmm. I think I think we were talking about this earlier, and I, I think I've, I've always I've read a lot in my past. I, you know, I think when I had a lot more time in school, but I, I, most important for me is is finding ways to learn that mm -hmm. work with your lifestyle. Right. And so I, I listen to a lot of books on podcasts on my uh, on my cell phone as MP3 files or audiobooks. Right. I listen to. Um, a lot of like YouTube videos and how-to guides like online. Right. Um, you know, honestly, anywhere and anyhow that I can find a way to get that immersive experience that I get in a book, I do. Right, right. Awesome. Now, I talked to someone uh, a couple of interviews ago, uh, my, my good friend Pete Logan, about the Khan Academy. Are you are you aware of that? I do. No, I do Khan Academy like, you know, during the day. Like, you know, sometimes I just have like questions about things and I go to Khan Academy. I take Coursera courses. There's mm -hmm. a lot of MOOC courses, what they're called, the Massive Online online courses uh -huh. uh, so I, I take way too too many courses and I'm not a great student on every course but I, I, I'm always taking at least one or two MOOCs per semester right um, and I take a lot of online courses I listen to iTunes courses as well right wow wow like before I travel somewhere I will like when I went to Italy I, I did like 50 weeks of Italian on like Right. On iTunes. You did, did you learn a, a, a bit I of did. Italian? I was able to get on the bus and get off the bus and cross Say town. something right now. Uh, you know, buonasera. I know it's like, <laughs> good evening. You know? But I mean, like, there's some things that you need to know when you go somewhere. And uh, and I tried to use all these tools online to, to get more understanding where I'm going. And I travel a lot. so Right. And yeah. I can't always have a book with me. But the point is, you know, I can listen to the books where I can find different ways of learning. I yeah. think more than anything, I think that we just talked about this is, is is having when you have that curiosity to find ways to understand the world that you live in the reality that you move through you have to find a way to connect those dots and whether it's books or podcasts you have to you have to do that you have to follow that instinct right right awesome awesome cool well uh, let's see we'll, we'll move on to the next question then um how do you decide what to read and, and i think you just talked about that a little bit but uh and these are very reader specific questions so uh like I said, uh, just start mm. with the book and, and go anywhere. That's a good question. I think in part I decide what to read. I kind of think like a journalist this way. Mm -hmm. I decide to read based on timeliness and what has impact and relevance and newsworthiness in my life. Right, right. right. And so um, I've started, like right now, I'm, <laughs> like I'm reading a lot of social entrepreneurship books uh, mm -hmm. and, and looking at ways to um, think about social entrepreneurship uh, in a very concrete, you know, way to shape what I do and right. give me inspiration. I, I try more than anything. The main ingredient for me to find a book or find a way to like get access to that kind of knowledge is um, something that gives me inspiration. Right. That's like key ingredient, you know. Yeah, yeah, and I, I think that that's probably universal. I, I think that's why we all read, you know, is inspiration for living. So. I'm yeah. having a harder time. Uh, I, you know, when I was younger, and in high school. Um, I loved fiction. Mm -hmm. I'm having a harder time, you know. I, I think immersing myself in fiction. Right now, is that is that? Do you mean time wise, or, or just uh, you know mentally, subconsciously, or are you just having a hard time getting into it? Uh, the, the fiction. Yeah, I think I have a different, more difficult time getting into fiction these days. I like 
I would say like I like like journalist inspired fiction, like stuff that Margaret Atwood does. Right. She like takes. I'm like, a big Margaret Atwood fan. She's great. Like you know, a lot of her books are inspired by actual events. Right. That happens, and then she just like fictionalizes them. Yeah. You know, like murder of a woman, like you know, yeah. fell out of her car and she drowned underwater. I mean, like there's all these things that she she takes, and and I, I like I'm starting to like that that aspect of like how do you take one moment in life because so many things happen in our lives and we're so connected with so many realities like how can you like build upon that yeah before I'm, i have two books uh, by by an author i really love uh, i want to ask you about with regard to that but before we i, I ask you that i want to i want to uh, do you think that's something that I, I hear more and more people say that that, that fiction is less appealing to them and, and for me it's, it's just the opposite like i i kind of like need to escape the real world um but I, but i it seems like you know i hear that more and more often these days what do, what do you think about that it depends on the type of fiction you're reading i mean you look at Simon Rush Mm-hmm. I mean, he's writing fiction, but it has total relevance to his reality. Right. You know, what was he was going through at the time, and now it's, it's going to be a film. Or it is a film, um, you know, with the uh, satanic verses. But right. I think it depends on the fiction that you read. There's so many. You can't really peg fiction, but I think that, um, and, you know, like Margaret Atwood, like a lot of her stuff is fiction, too, but it's, like, you know, fact-inspired. Um, right. I, I think it depends on, you know, um, what you need from a book and yeah. what experience you need. Yeah. Yeah. The good thing is we have so many possibilities and so many options. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, it's a whole, you know, universe within our universe that I, is fiction. Yeah, I mean, I, I remember I could sit down and read Leo Tolstoy back to back, like cover to cover. Like, right. there's no problem for me, like, to read Anna Karenina in like a week. Like, yeah. Like, you know, it was done. Like, now, could I read Anna Karenina in a week? <laughs> I could listen to Anna Karenina. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, know? yeah. But I'm not sure I could read it. Uh, uh, yeah, I don't know if, if most adults can, can finish it in a week unless they're independently wealthy or, you know. Yeah. And some other, great. yeah. So those two books. Uh, have you read any Gabriel Garcia Marquez? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, just speaking of, of uh, fiction, kind of coming from a single event or from uh, journalism uh, of love and other demons. Have you read that? I, I love that book, and, and it's. I think it's based on a newspaper article about a little girl whose hair continues to grow. You know, they they discover the skeleton, and the, and the hair is like you know just feet upon feet long. And then the other one that I really love, I just read it again recently, is uh, Chronicle of a Death Foretold. Uh, just, you know, this, what I love about this book uh, is that you know the entire book long that this guy's going to die at the end of the book. I mean, the, the very title, Chronicle of a Death Foretold. And yet, when you see the ridiculousness of it, of, of his death, and, and the fact that he's not truly responsible for the thing for which he's killed, you read it the whole time thinking that, that this this isn't going to happen, you know, like somebody's going to stop these guys. It's not going to happen. And, you know, it, of course, it, you know, it, it does happen. That's not a spoiler to tell you that. Um, <laughs> I hope it's not anyway. Um, but, uh, you know, so what do you think of those two Well, books? I think Garcia Marquez is an interesting choice because um, Garcia Marquez is kind of like Margaret Atwood that way, like 100 Years in Solitude. It was actually something like 15 short stories that he wrote about his family, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know, and uh, he's a he's an influence for a lot of Latin Americans. Uh, I, 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 he influenced me a, a lot in the way that I write. But, you know, he essentially what he did is he just stitched together those stories and, uh, and put them into this. It was basically like 100 years. It's actually, I think, technically 110 years of his family. Right. Um, wow. And their life. Um, and it's really focused around one thing, uh-huh. which is like not having a child with a pig's tail. That is the whole point of 100 years of solitude. Right. I read that so long ago. And, and but the minute you said child with the pig's tail and kind of yeah, some like, of it came springing back to it's me. It's incest, right? It was right. Like, that's the point. It was like to tell the story of how this family, you know, had incest. 
yeah you know um and a bunch of other things in the context in which you live united fruit company or uh, banana fruit company towns and so he's a really interesting him and carlos fuentes um you have a lot of magical <clears throat> excuse me elements of magical realism that and i think in, in many ways when you have fact and fiction that you know that sometimes things the truth does seem more like fiction and fiction sometimes seems more like fact so i think it's really interesting to see Mar- garcia marquez is like in that tradition right right yeah i see that's a another instance of my phone going off during the interview <laughs> but luckily with the music playing in the background it always seems like it's part of the song so <laughs> So, all right, well, we're going to move on to the next question. Uh, And I think we've already talked about this a little bit, too, but I'm I'm really excited to get your perspective on it. Um, Talk a little bit about books as objects. Uh, How many do you have? Do you prefer paper or digital? So we've kind of already gone there a little bit. Let's hear let's hear the the whole story. Interesting. Mm -hmm. I've been moving around a lot. So I actually got rid of I I donated uh, most of my I think I had four thousand five thousand books. Wow. Wow. I got got rid of most of them. Um, How could you bear to part with five thousand books? You know, I think and I went back to like when I first immigrated to the United States and I grew up in libraries. And, and what I started um, realizing is like the amount of books that I had and all these books that I had, um, I was a little bit too concerned about them as objects or like I was too connected to them as objects and not about like the, like the knowledge that I gained from them. Right. And so I started giving them to people and like donating them. And I felt like a real sense of freedom again that I used to feel when I would just walk into libraries and out of a library with one book right. or a few books. Read yeah. them, take them back. You're making me feel like a horrible person. No, right? no, no, not at all. You know, <laughs> I'm and so I, attached and I think, to books as well, objects. I think it goes with lifestyle, right? I mean, like, I can't be carrying around, like, 4,000 books. I tried. Trust me, I tried to carry around my 4,000 books. Um, and, you know, I, I have to say, like, I think there's a really important role of the e-readers, like the Kindles and the iPads. I think now, I mean, like, between my Kindle and my iPad, I have about... I mean, at least a thousand books in there. Right, right. And PDFs. Here's the other thing: is like so much of, of there's some great thing. Like things yeah, scholarship. PDFs, yeah, I, I have so many. Uh, you know, philosophical texts like, as PDFs. Right? Yeah, crazy. I was printing super them expensive. Out. Well, and it's like not environmentally like responsible. Right. So like, right. Like what I started doing is just like you know, I got my Kindles and my iPad for, for PDFs. Right. Right. That was it? You know, I would never think that I would be like reading a book on there, but like. I do that now. I mean, yeah. I would say, like, the one thing that for me that, that I'm missing in that experience is that the holding of a book is very important to me. Like, right. that experience. And the smell of, like, of yeah, a book. Yeah, especially <laughs> older books, right? Um, right. And, and so I miss that experience. I miss, like, a lot. Like, for example, in the Kindle, you can't tell where you are. Like, it's got, like, a status bar. Right. So you don't get that, like, sense of accomplishment when you, like, turn the page. You're like, yes. Yeah, yeah. I'm trying to figure that out, you know, because like the status bar and and like depending on the size of the book or whatever, I haven't been able to quite yet like make the the intuitive connection between how far I have left to go and yeah. how far I've read. Yeah. And I'll tell you, there's something interesting. The BBC did a good series on like sleep deprivation, mm-hmm. and uh, they were saying that um, there's been a lot of studies about how we have all these screens and all these uh, readers and all these portable readers and a lot of screens what they do is it confuse your brain into thinking it's daylight mm. so i've actually noticed this so like now I, I used to always read a book like an actual physical book before i go to sleep then i started using ipads and my kindle and it actually impacts my sleep right so i actually switched back to a physical book yeah because i would i would lose i would like lose my like i wouldn't be tired yeah i would just keep reading on this you know that that 
I, I do that a lot. Uh, Kristen has seen me like fall asleep in front of a screen, uh, you know, and, and so I'm gonna have to look into that. You should, uh, I mean, it's I mean, it definitely impacted me. And so like even that, like you don't realize it because you're like, oh, it's super convenient to have an iPad. But like, I I couldn't like I wasn't tired. Right. And one of the nice things about having a book is you get a sense of like, you know, I think I've gotten my fill. Like I'm gonna yeah, sleep. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's I'm really gonna have to look into that because it. Yeah. I'll I'll just one thing after another on on the iPad or on my laptop when I have it in bed. Um, yeah. It does. It does. Right. And melatonin is right. what what uh, drives your sleep. That's what right. makes you sleep and yawn. You yeah. know, so. If if you can't hear, Kristen uh, just interjected that it affects your melatonin levels. Uh, so. And I confirmed it. Yes. <laughs> so sweet. Well, that, that's a great perspective on uh, on digital versus paper. Five thousand books out gone. Started pro huh? digital. Now I'm like I'm bringing you back to manual. Yeah. Well, I, I like that. I like that that you that you know that you have both <laughs> angles uh, going. One one of the uh, or, or my my good buddy. Uh, I, I've talked about him a little on here before. Uh, he's at Oxford right now, and, and he's gone through the same dilemma and and pretty much the same uh, uh, situation as you. He had the he loved thousands of books over to uh, to Oxford uh, from from North America and he's slowly divesting himself of them and, and moving to digital it's actually very freeing I never thought I would say this but I, was, I felt very free of right. stuff stuff right. you know even books it's right yeah stuff. books are still stuff you know because I get I mean probably a lot of people who love books and I've met this a lot of people who love books who buy books incessantly and they don't even read them right right like, and now I'm living we're subletting an apartment in Austin because we just moved there and I'm actually living with someone else's books and it was such and then what it, it was like both a humbling experience and it was a reality check when I stepped into her house and she had all these books lined up and they were exactly the same books I had owned. <laughs> right. She had done her, you know, masters in literature and like and I was like Yeah. Oh, there's actually nothing particularly special about my physical ownership of a book. Right, right. Right. Yeah. And what was more special is I could sit down with her and say, Hey, so you did read like you know Proust or like which which Proust did you like or like right. you know what was your favorite Garcia Marquez or like I saw some of your Octavio Paz like poems did you like the poem which section did you like you know and that to me was like yeah way so more important more. than than the, the yeah, paper the, and the mm -hmm. ink yeah wow so Gutenberg would disagree but uh. <laughs> yeah yeah Gutenberg is probably rolling around in his grave right now yeah yeah so all right um two questions left uh. What is your favorite book of all time and why? And, uh, you know, you can go anywhere with that. I've realized that it may be a bad question, Difficult. but it's bad in a good way. Uh, mm. So have at it. Wow. I think, man, I think my my favorite book of all time that I always go back to is uh, the Flannery O'Connor book of short stories. Mm. You know, mm. I always I know it's not one book. It's like a bunch of short stories, but I'm kind of cheating. But 100 Years of Solitude is the same way. Right. Um, right. I, I think Flannery O'Connor. Um, you know the gothic writers are credible like any william faulkner I yeah mean, i've read I, some william faulkner i think as not I flannery o'connor as i lay dying is exceptional yeah. um have you ever tried absalom absalom mm -hmm. oh yeah. my god I actually, it's so my, dense it's, it's so hard to read i love absalom, absalom and my because it has so many old testament references right right I, I grew up catholic but um my my undergraduate thesis was based on the same structure of absalom absalom really and so what i did is i actually adopted a very similar methodology and so each of my chapters is is told from a different perspective in my family right wow yeah wow. and so um yeah no i was very inspired by that but i go you have back. to send that to us uh, via will, pdf yeah, and uh, and we'll check it out once i change the names i will <laughs> um that family right then they're like what yeah we need to change those names. putting our business in the streets <laughs> <laughs> it 
was not, it was a fail. Um, but I think that uh, I keep going back to Flannery O'Connor because she's um, she's got that quality that Ernest Hemingway has that she keeps things very simple, mm-hmm. very direct, and just like just like goes really deep into like dark places very fast. And I right. like that. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm gonna read some this week now that you've uh, you've told me about that. Kristen uh, probably has read some of the Flannery O'Connor that we own here. I think we have a couple of books, but maybe they they go toward what you were saying, just books that we bought and haven't read yet. Well, the one that yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, good man is hard to find. I would start with that. Right. Um, that's a very good story. Uh, okay. it's, it's a long story, but it, you know she made it into like a book. Um, and you know there's a great oh man, I wish I could I could remember what the website is called. I think it's called. It's not culture wars. Um, I'll send it to you. It's it's actually a a, a blog uh, all about books. Like you know, you can get free books and um, uh, all these like things that people have a very difficult time finding. And they actually posted last week uh, Flannery reading uh, a good man is hard to find. Right. Like these old scratchy tapes. Right. Her her like reading A-tracks. it. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Even before A yeah i bet that's impressive yeah yeah well yeah do send me that well she was an interesting character too because she had lupus most of her life so she was like in a lot of pain right right yeah wow now is is she what's her ethnicity she's like you know from the south she's Right, right. I just I don't hear about many Caucasian people having lupus. Uh, so yeah, no, it's typically point. something that, that uh, you know is more um, uh, she, people yeah, of color suffer from point. lupus. I wonder. Yeah, yeah, maybe. I mean, she was definitely like you know she couldn't walk for a big, like a big part of her life. Right. Um, it debilitated her. And she just wrote. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Shows you what I know about Flannery O'Connor. Well, you know what's interesting too about the Gothic writers is that there there's a lot of similarity to the Gothic writers. Um, and then you talk about like, you're basically talking about the South, like Faulkner, and I guess you can even put Tennessee Williams in there. But um, you know, you can you can they have a lot in common with Latin American writers. Because really. Latin American writers are dealing with themselves. Right. Right. And in, in the South at that time, with a lot yeah. of writing, it, it was a very rural. Yeah, it still is in some yeah. places yeah. <laughs> where, and, and that, where I'm that from. Shapes, <laughs> that shapes your lifestyle and it shapes your thinking about, um, you know, day-to-day things. So. Right. And right. Learning, obviously. Yeah, yeah, absolutely it does. So, cool. So, Flannery O'Connor. Kristen, we'll, we'll have to check that out. Because a good man is hard to find. Yeah, I, I suppose. <laughs> so, I suppose they are. So, lucky for you, you found one. So... You hear that, Brad? <laughs> Shout out to Brad Eller. <laughs> so, all right. So the last question, uh, and I expect a, a pretty various answer on this one, is uh, what are you reading right now? Oh, that's really, I'm reading a few books, like anybody like has ADD like me. Um, <laughs> I'm reading Trickster. Trickster. Yeah, it's a really interesting book about. Sounds familiar. Uh, it's great. It's great. Uh, who's the author? I don't even know who the author is. Um, she did a you know, here's an interesting thing like i've been watching a lot of ted presentations which uh, and i wish you could favorite it on here all right we're back we had a little audio hiccup there so we were talking about the trickster right no this the, your audio hiccup was very well timed um <laughs> because i got to look up the author it's uh, the book is called trickster makes makes this world it's mischief myth and art and mm-hmm. it's by lewis hyde um and it's actually very good it's like a it's 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 not fiction right i know you'll be disappointed <laughs> i'll live i'll um, live it's not fiction but it's it's it looks at this archetype and i've been thinking about this a lot because i'm working on a book of well, i, I want to write a book about my mother mm-hmm. um who was a coyote which um 
for people who know a little bit about what Central American smuggling looks like, but my mom uh, used to smuggle people, undocumented um, people through the border as during the 80s when there was a lot of armed conflict in Central right. America, especially in Guatemala. Wow. And there's a lot of, and I was looking at the role of the coyote. Uh-huh. Um, so tell me about the coyote. I mean, is that just a name for the a, a person who yeah, smuggled? Yeah, coyote. Yeah, no, everybody in Central America knows what a coyote does. A coyote, a coyote is someone who you, you pay to bring you over. Now, coyotes now, it's interesting too, um, coyotes now are seen in a completely different light because the business of being, of being a coyote has changed quite mm-hmm. a bit. Back in the 80s, people were coyotes... Um, to, to essentially to just trek through Mexico and get people into the U.S. Right. It sounded um, like maybe it was more heroic back then. Uh, or- uh, not heroic. I think the context was different. What's happened is that now, because of the, the drug trafficking trade mm-hmm. and how it's pushed up against Central America and a lot of coke and um, cocaine and, and different uh, drugs are being pushed up north into the U.S. because of demand, that uh, a lot of turf, there's a lot of turf forest going on in Mexico mm-hmm. for who can control where drugs are smuggled mm-hmm. and so based uh so ba- when coyotes go through this turf they either have to pay fees to be able to get through the turf right um or they're actually hired or they're some kind of like um you know bottom of the pyramid type of employee for the, the families the cartels or whatever the cartels yeah and then you get all these weird stuff that happens with like mass graves where you know, like you know certain things aren't paid or coyotes have different loyalties and you know people were lost in the desert because apparently abandons them yeah wow. and it wasn't it wasn't like that in the 80s from what my mother tells me that i've interviewed a couple of other folks but um it's changed quite a bit because of the context of what's happening in mexico and central america right and probably here too with mm-hmm. you know with well the, the demand is obviously coming from the u.s so, right, um, right but my my mother did that in a time that was it wasn't a business she did it to bring us into the u.s and so I've been thinking about writing a book about female coyotes, like women coyotes. Yeah. And so this is why I'm reading this book, um, which gets to your other question is how do I choose the books? In part, I choose books. I always want to, I kind of think of like like a reporter. Like when you're a reporter, you always think about like, okay, I'll have this idea for a story, but who else has done it? Like you don't want to repeat the same story. It makes no sense. Yeah. Because the idea is to create a conversation. So if someone hasn't done like like another piece of the puzzle then you do the next piece right right so nobody has written about female coyotes because there weren't that many Mm -hmm. right Mm -hmm. like right now no one has written about the change uh, you know for anybody any journalist listening out there like you know and the the, the change in in what it means to be a coyote right now right as opposed to that um so that's why i looked at this book trickster and i've been thinking i've been reading it on off because it's actually pretty thick um it's like 300 pages and and thinking about it in context of like how do I create a backbone for my book based yeah. on this idea of a trickster and its role throughout history yeah. and archetypes. Wow, yeah. That's Sounds really interesting. Books. You should write that. I need to write that. <laughs> yeah, you did. totally, totally. Yeah. 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 So that's one of the books that I'm reading. I, I finished, uh, I, I'll tell you one book that stuck with me in the past, uh, I would say six months that I've read is called The Medici Effect. Mm-hmm. I, I, I've, I've seen that somewhere. It's but, great. That's also a nonfiction book. The Medici uh, Effect is about... Um, how we make more intelligent decisions in more diverse groups. Mm-hmm. And so the more diverse our groups, the more informed and multidisciplinary our uh, choices are for coming to resolution to something. Right, right, yeah. I mean, it seems cool. like common sense, uh, but, you know, common sense really is, right? So. Well, I mean, the thing is, we think about diversity as like a race thing. But, you know, I've been in situations, actually, very recently at this conference that I went to, the storytelling conference, I had 
it was very diverse racially, but class, I think, right. shows more diversity. Like, I could be in a room full of Guatemalans, but I come from, you know, banana fruit pickers, and I have nothing in common with a Guatemalan from Guatemala City who's from the city. Right. right. And they don't know anything about my background. You right. Know, because it's a different class structure. Yeah. And also in the U.S., you know, someone who grows up in the rural south versus someone who grows up in, like, you know, upstate New York and or in the Bronx or whatever. Like has a very different reality. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So diversity of, of state of mind of, of, and of mm-hmm. experience. Uh, is I mean, I think class will be, the, it is a new race at this point right? Uh, in the U.S. And, and people, um, I think, need to start to think about it in that way. Right, right, yeah. Couldn't agree more. So... Sorry, we went into the uh, narco trafficking there. <laughs> no, no, that, that's awesome. <laughs> like I said, you know, all you have to do is start with the book. So yeah. we can talk about anything. So, well, well, thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for coming, man. This this was awesome. I'm, I'm really, uh, really pleased. I, I can't wait to get this all cleaned up and, uh, you know, and, and get it on, online. And so. I, I'll, I'll send you a copy of when I change the names of my, my family. You, you totally have to. I'm, I'm totally interested to read that. So, we'll do. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you very, very much, Kara Andrade. 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 <laughs> See, I knew I was going to, I managed to butcher it anyway. Gosh. Good, uh, I always say it that way. So um, thank you very much for uh, for sitting down with us. And uh, I'll, I'll send you an email. Certainly, I won't try and contact you via Twitter. Uh, <laughs> it's not personal. Kara has ignored me on Twitter for like over a year now. <laughs> oh, horrible Twitter. So. Uh, uh, I'm a but, tweet. Yeah. Well, uh, funny. <laughs> Thanks. And, Thanks a uh, lot. Thanks for having me. Yeah, uh, my pleasure. We'll, we'll, I'll let you know as soon as this is up, and uh, and you can give it a listen. Thanks. Thanks. Bye bye. American Desert, a novel by Percival Everett. Then to this earthen bowl did I adjourn, my lip, the secret well of life to learn. And lip to lip it murmured, while you live, drink, for once dead, you shall never return. Rubiat of Omar Khayyam Book One Chapter One That Theodore Street was dead was not a matter open to debate. The irony of his accidental death went unobserved, as no one knew that Theodore was on his way to commit suicide when he was, shall we say, interrupted. Now the irony is lost amid the confusion created by Ted's death, departure, demise, disillusion, and further by the fact that Ted chooses to relate his own story in third person. An unusual, the occasional politician and athlete aside, but acceptable device given that, in a most profound way, he stood, or stands even, outside himself. Not so much on the parapet of consciousness, but of life itself. It being perhaps the case that neither entails necessarily the other. But regardless of where Ted stood, or stands, he was on his way to the beach where he had every intention of marching into the ocean until it was over his head, and taking a deep, 
lung-filling breath of water, which, according to his limited knowledge of human physiology, would result in a termination of his life, barring the interference of some lifeguard or boy scout or girl scout, though he had never found girl scouts to be terribly overzealous or meddlesome. He was driving at a respectable clip along Ocean Boulevard when a fat man chased his nails-painted poodle out into the street before a UPS truck, causing the driver of the huge brown block to swerve and slide into a lane of oncoming traffic. The oncoming traffic in this case being Ted Street in his 1978 Lancia Coupe. The truck and the Lancia met violently, and whereas his vehicle halted quite abruptly, Ted did not but continued in the same direction he had been traveling through the already cracked windshield. Remarkably, Ted's face suffered not a single scratch, and neither did his body break about the ribs, clavicles, arms, or legs, but his head did become rather cleanly detached from the rest of him. It was a jagged but complete wound around his neck, that left one seasoned police officer vomiting by the accordioned front fender of the Lancia, while the young rookie on patrol with him stood, mouth agape, staring at the head lying on the asphalt. Unlike the stories of beheaded Frenchmen stealing one last pitiful look at their cast-off bodies, Ted had no such perception. He died instantly and in a manner of speaking, completely. The UPS man was beside himself, so much so that he would later attend Ted Street's funeral and subsequently take a civil service examination in order to change his profession. The coroner's wagon came with the representative of the coroner, not the coroner himself, and the young man observes Ted's head from his wagon door and was satisfied that he was dead, making the requisite marks on his clipboard, but having to call his office to ask whether head and body should be placed in the same or separate bags. Ted's head was placed under his left arm, the fingers of his hand falling over his mouth, which was frozen partly open, and the cool vinyl bag was zipped from bottom to top. The ride in the coroner's wagon to the morgue was protracted, the medical examiner's assistant stopping at a fast food restaurant, his mother's house, a comic book store, and a remote parking lot where he charged gang thugs a dollar each to see the stiff. At the morgue, which turned out not to be deep in the bowels of some hospital, but on a second floor of the 60s vintage medical examiner's office with lots of windows that didn't open and a unisex restroom, Ted's wife, Gloria, viewed his head on a video monitor as it sat in a metal bowl. She let out a short but reasonably justified scream. She then fell into the arms of her sister, Hannah, who had never liked Ted anyway and wept convincingly, and no doubt sincerely, the image of the head on the screen etching itself into her forever memory. 
The image blurred just a bit there on the screen, but finally looked exactly like the head she had slept with for so many years. The matter, however, rang with an air of incompleteness, as it was the case that the body was never identified, only the head. And isn't that what is always required? That the body be identified? We want you to come down and identify the body, the cop always says. Never, is that his head? So Gloria signed papers and said that Ted had never mentioned that he wanted his organs donated to medicine, science, or the needy, and that such a decision should have been his, and that he, all of him, should be sent to the Iverson Ash Graves and Shroud Mortuary over in Garden Grove. And so he was sent over there. In the embalming room, Ash and Graves agreed that Ted had lost enough blood that there would be a poor draw on the fluid and that no one would notice the difference anyway if they didn't fill him with formaldehyde and methyl alcohol. And certainly they were not going to waste humectants and anticoagulants on him. Besides, as Ash pointed out to Graves, poor draw could create embarrassing results, as when Pope John Paul I began to swell up and make sounds during the live broadcast of his funeral ceremony. Don't you remember how that poor altar boy had to keep wiping the purge away from the pontiff's mouth? Ash said. Ash sewed Ted's head back onto his body, his stitches sloppy but tight, using blue 30-weight fishing line. And instead of sewing the mouth shut by passing the th thread through the nose, Ash simply put eight stitches between the lips. Iverson and Shroud were trying to talk Gloria into buying a gaudy bronze coffin with the eagle or some other bird of prey sculpted handles, her sister balking the while. The children, Emily and Perry, twelve and seven, sitting some feet away, their little faces blank with confusion but knowing enough to be terrified of the place, the drapes, the maroon flock and foil wallpaper, the dark corridors, the ashen-faced men smiling those ashen smiles, which were not quite smiles. Mommy, Perry said, I want to go home. As soon as we find Daddy a nice casket, dear, Gloria said. Come over here and look at the book with Mommy. Perry and Emily walked from the floral print sofa, irises, across the dark carpet to the desk, where they stood on either side of their mother and looked at the catalog of final resting containers. He won't be able to turn over in there, Perry said. Daddy's dead, stupid, Emily said. He won't be turning over. Then, having said it, the girl understood and began to feel her grief, a contagious condition that reduced both children to tears. This left Gloria at the mercy of the tall, chilly-handed morticians, and she ended up buying the most expensive box, 
the lining of which even she at the time recognized as something appropriate for a brothel, however cloud-like. Come along, children, she said, and they escaped, went to a fun place to eat. The funeral was held three days after Ted's decapitation, at a church that Ted never attended when alive. In fact, Ted had never attended any church, but where else does one hold a funeral service? This was what Gloria thought, and so with her sister's help, Hannah no doubt thinking it a fitting final insult to Ted to have his last earthly function held within the walls of a place he would never have entered alive, she found the sacred blood-first Christ Church of the Everlasting Spirit over in Long Beach. During his life, Ted had been a college professor, teaching Old English and various survey courses at the University of Southern California. He had taken ten years to obtain his doctorate and put off his tenure review by taking leaves of absence. But the time had come to be considered for tenure, and the pressure was on. His book had not been accepted by any publisher, though Cornell University Press had kept it for a long time, finally rejecting it, writing, It is too much like books we published last year. He had for the past two semesters felt as if his colleagues were staring at him, avoiding him treating him like some terminally ill patient. Good teaching evaluations just aren't enough, said Horace Shipley, an early Americanist with a Melville beard and a mole that stuck out of it. When his department hired a new person in his field, a young woman who had not only already published a book on Beowulf, but was on the cutting edge of digital imaging of manuscripts, Ted saw the writing on the wall. Now, the cast were all crammed into the roasting hothouse of God. The department chair, the unsufferably pompous dean of the college, and the Beowulf woman included, to watch Ted being sent off to wherever, stretched out in his expensive box with a bit of the blue fishing line showing just over his starched white collar. He was casketed in the standard position, his right shoulder slightly lower than his left, so as not to have him appear as what he was, a dead body, flat on its back. As well, he was slightly elevated in order to diminish the prominence of the coffin. Gloria and the children were in the front row, just feet away from the casket, their backs straight against the tired wood of the pew. So was Gloria's sister, wearing a khaki dress and white sandals. There was a choir dressed in powder blue robes singing some songs that Ted would never have recognized about their God coming back to earth and pastures and sheep, and they swayed the while. A maroon-robed minister, a big man named Larville Stage, stood and cleared his throat made a brief comment about the heat, fanned himself using a fan bearing the image of Martin Luther King Jr. on one side and advertising a funeral home on the other, 
and said that he didn't want to keep everyone too long. But we must send our brother off to his final resting place with the proper blessing and the love of Christ our Lord. Poor, poor Theodore Street met a violent and senseless death on the streets of our sin-ridden city. His blood spilled into the same gutters that carry away our daily filth and urine. Yes, brothers and sisters, Theodore Street is nothing less than a neon marker in the road of life. Having looked both ways before crossing, perhaps, but like so many of us, having failed to look up. He is a marker telling us that at any second, any second, everything earthly can end. One minute you're driving along, and the next your head is over there and your body is over there. A yelp escaped one of Ted's children, and then both buried their faces in their mother's sides. Stage spread his sausage fingers wide and wrapped them over the edge of the lectern in front of him. Theodore Street was a teacher, and he is teaching us even now. He is teaching us that life is temporary and that we better have our affairs straight. The book of Isaiah, chapter 38, verse 1 says, Set thine house in order, for thou shalt die and not live. Never were truer words spoke. Just ask Theodore Street. But finally, I must admit that I did not know Mr. Street. But Jesus knew him. An amen shot out from the choir. Thank you, sister. Yes, our Lord knew Mr. Street, and he knows him even better now, though we have no idea if he got to the house of God in one piece. Maybe his head got there first and had to wait for the rest of him, but it is no matter, because both parts have moved on. But to speak about the living Theodore Street, let me introduce the head, pardon me, the chairman of the department in which the deceased taught, Professor Orville Orson. Orville Orson was a fat pig of a man, a Joyce scholar who despised Joyce with a passion and had devoted his career to exposing the great Arthur as a mediocre writer who happened to be very, very smart. Orson wore suspenders, which he called braces, and seersucker suits, no matter how cool the weather turned. He was wearing a heat-crumpled seersucker when he rose and walked from the third row to the altar. His sweaty, meaty palm pressed into Stage's sweaty, meaty palm, and the lectern was turned over. Orson was perspiring about the neck and forehead, but he was used to that, and so his constant wiping with his handkerchief did not make him appear nervous or uncomfortable. I first met Ted nine years ago, he said, the point of it significant to everyone save Larville Stage and the members of the Sacred Blood First Christ Church of the Everlasting Spirit. He came into my office, having just finished his degree at Duke, with bright eyes and enormous energy. He immediately became a cherished colleague to all of us in the department and the college as well. Though he never published anything, or, to my knowledge, wrote anything, he was a dedicated teacher. Then, in his usual, forgetful manner, he paused, then said, 
I'm sorry. Ted did write something. He wrote a book, though I have no idea what it could have been about. I know only that no one wanted to publish it. Anyway, Ted's students admired him greatly. He was, in fact, twice voted by the students as Outstanding Teacher of the Year. His classes were for years oversubscribed. He paused again, then, as if thinking while talking. He said, Until his tenure review loomed rather largely on his horizon, and his attention span apparently dwindled to a few seconds, and he stopped preparing his lectures. But you know how that goes. The important thing to remember today is that Ted Street was a good man, a devoted husband, and a loving father. One doesn't have to be a good scholar to be those things. And what's more important? Ted was what he was right up to the very end. It's a shame that such a gruesome death befell him. But from all reports, he died suddenly and suffered little, if at all. Orson tugged at his collar. So we bid Ted a final farewell. Perhaps in that university system in the sky, Ted will, after all, get to publish his book. Goodbye, Ted. The choir sang a song called, This is the Road to Our Savior, Lord, Our Christ, while the attendants stood with hymnals open before them, mouthing the words and flashing to each other bewildered looks. Then, as the choir ended its final amen with the harmonious hum, Theodore Street sat up in his coffin. A hush filled the church, as one might expect, but it was not long-lived. Emily Street screamed and tried to crawl up her mother's side, while Perry Street's mouth formed the word Daddy over and over. Gloria Street fainted, but remained frozen upright with wide open eyes. Gloria's sister made a break for the door, her large feet tripping her near the end of the aisle's red carpet, causing her to roll to a stop at a blind man's feet with her dress over her head. Orville Orson farted and farted again. The dean prayed loudly. The Beowulf woman reached into her bag and readied the pepper spray her fiancé had bought for her. Larville Stage raised his hands and shouted to the ceiling of the sacred blood first Christ Church of the Everlasting Spirit, Lord Jesus God, Jesus Lord my God, hallelujah, a miracle in my church, in my little house of God, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Then the choir joined in with him, chanting, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Amid the chanting and screaming and farting, Ted Street climbed out of his box and faced them all. As it turned out, his trousers had been just Mr. Ash's size, and so he was naked from the waist down, his tallywhacker hanging rather handsomely out in front of him. Ted Street looked at all the faces, studying them one by one and remembering their voices and their turns to and away from him. The Beowulf woman might have been the most frightened of the lot. Rachel Ruddy visited the campus for the first time 
just after the Modern Languages Association meeting. It was January, and it had been raining for six days straight, flooding the canyons and washing away expensive homes and making the freeways frightening sheets of water and oil. Ted Street had been conspicuously left out of her itinerary, but was included in the 45-minute lunch preceding her lecture. Leonard Foreman escorted Rachel Ruddy to the faculty club, and they were to be joined by Henrietta Blues. But Henrietta Blues' Irish setter began to have seizures, and so she couldn't make it. Then, Leonard Foreman's wife called to say that she was stuck on the 405 and asked if Leonard would pick up their daughter, and so Ted was left alone with Rachel Ruddy, both apparently all too aware of their impending career changes. I read a very positive review of your book, Ted said. Rachel Ruddy poked at her salad. I heard you give a paper two years ago in Kalamazoo, she said. I remember it was quite good. Ted nodded, but for the life of him, he could not recall the paper in question. Your CV shows a new book out soon. Yes, Cambridge is publishing it, she said. And then, as if she was sorry she had said anything, added, They asked for so many changes that I thought it would never be finished. Ted watched her eat and decided that he liked her. He felt sad that she had to be so painfully aware of her coming to replace him and that circumstances had stuck her across the table now. He said, You don't have to feel bad. You're not to blame for anything going awry in my career. I've enjoyed teaching here, but you're a hot property. You have to accept that fact. I do. So why don't we relax? Rachel Ruddy smiled. You're a very nice man, she said. Ted nodded. You seem nice too. So what do you want to know about this place? But he didn't believe then that he was a nice man. He was saying these things to her so that he, not she, would feel more comfortable. You'll give it to me straight, she asked. You bet. Ted's staring at Rachel Ruddy had bad consequences in the hot and crowded church as she raised her pepper spray and began to blast away wildly, blinding those who were seeking the door causing, as if that were possible, louder and more intensified screaming. Orville Orson fell back into his pew, his hand on his chest. Orville Orson was not the chair who had hired Ted Street some nine years earlier, and rumor had it that Orson had been against his appointment in the first place. But the fat man was generally cordial. Come on into my office, Orson said as he spied Ted in the hallway one day. Have a seat. New lamp? Ted asked. Yes, my wife bought it for me, Orson said. He closed the door and kicked a rolled up towel across the bottom of it. Would you like a cigar, Ted? No, thank you, Ted said. Orson stuck a fat stogie in his face and sat behind his desk lit up, and then rested his hands on his big belly. You know, you've got to come up for tenure next semester. Ted nodded. How's the book coming? Orso asked. 
Cornell kept it for six months, but didn't take it. Orson looked out the window and drew on his cigar. Your teaching evaluations are superior. You know that, Ted. Ted, do you think you're going to get this book published? Don't bother answering. Ted, Ted, Ted. Do you have any other prospects? Are you telling me that I don't have a chance at tenure? Ted asked. You've published two articles in eight years. I know how much I've published, Ted said. And haven't published, Orson shot back. Listen, Ted, I'm not against you, but a lot goes into preparing a tenure file. There have to be meetings and class visitations sometimes, and outside letters, and then the chair has to write a long letter explaining why the department is recommending what it's recommending, and on and on. And do you really think you're going to publish this book? Are you saying that I don't have a chance at tenure if I don't publish a book? Ted asked. Basically. But I'm a fine teacher, Ted said. Well, you get good evaluations anyway. Ted looked out the window at the parking lot and the street beyond it. What's that supposed to mean? But Orson didn't answer. Instead, he looked at the cigar between his fingers with a befuddled expression, then began to turn red about the face and neck, throwing back his head and straightening his enormous legs in front of him. What is it? Ted asked. Orson fell out of his chair and Ted ran around the table to kneel beside him. Orville! Orville, he said. Then he yelled out for help, grabbed the phone, and dialed 911 and asked for an ambulance. He called out again, then realized that Orson was blue and that he was not breathing. Ted bent over him and began CPR, placing his lips over the cigar-reeking mouth and blew, wondering if one had to blow harder to inflate a fat man. Between each breath into Orson, Ted shouted out for help until finally Leonard Foreman came in with one of the department secretaries. They watched while Ted saved Orson's life. As he was being wheeled away by the paramedics, Orson pointed a fat finger at Ted and said, You get that book published. You hear me? You get that book published. It was clear that Orson was having a massive heart attack right there in the pew on the lap of the dean who, by similar appearance, could have been judged to be engaged in a coronary fit of his own. Ted wanted to call out to the people in the church, tell them to calm down and take their seats or, at least, leave in an orderly fashion. But his mouth was sewn shut, and so he could only say, Mmm! Mmm! Mm. Ted's son was standing now, walking blank-faced toward his father, as if hypnotized. But matters of the family will be revealed in due course. To say the least, Ted's resurrection caused a stir, a terrible riot which spread from the church and into the streets, resulting later in the arrest of 17 gang members who saw the shocked, enlightened mass as prime targets for robbery in their general entertainment. On that day, Orville Orson and the Dean died from heart attacks right on the floor of the sacred blood-first 
Christ Church of the Everlasting Spirit. Gloria's sister, Hannah, suffered a broken arm. Rachel Ruddy pepper-sprayed herself out of the church and to her car, where she was able to drive to the freeway and then a few exits away, where she stopped at a Caro's or Denny's and called her boyfriend in San Francisco, who first thought she was joking, then decided she had lost her mind and hung up on her. The UPS man, who had been seated in the last row, having taken time out of his rounds and so was still wearing his UPS browns, slipped quietly out at the first sign of movement from the coffin. Mr. Graves, from the funeral parlor, had been sitting off to the side and remained there throughout the confusion, studying over and again his clipboard, on which was fastened the medical examiner's vital statistics form, otherwise known as the death certificate. Mmm, mmm, Ted said. He went and stood in front of Mr. Graves. Mmm! Mr. Graves took out his Swiss Army pocket knife and with trembling hands slit all but three of the stitches of Ted Street's mouth before fanning. Ever boozy kamzun, Ted said. Ruax! By now, Gloria had regained at least a few of her senses and could see that her husband was not dead, but alive in front of her. She and the children ran to him, and he lowered himself to hug them all, becoming suddenly ashamed of his nakedness. He took his wife's mantilla and draped it around his middle. The four of them looked at the mess in the church, at the choir praying and sweating under the direction of Reverend Stage, whose hands were reaching ever higher for the heavens at the final pitiful twitches of Orson and the Dean, at Hannah holding her injured arm close to her chest and whimpering on the floor by the double doors. Ted and Gloria and the children walked from the altar down a narrow and dark corridor and out the back into the alley. They would not have known that there was a riot going on except for the screaming and blowing of horns which seemed so far away. Daddy, how can you be alive? Emily asked. I don't know. Gloria reached into her bag and came back with the fingernail trimming scissors and cut the remaining sutures from Ted's lips. Emily, Perry, and Gloria recoiled at the thought the sound and the sight of the snipping. Ted spat away the debris. Thank you, honey, Ted said. That's much better. Emily began to cry. Ted looked at her, sad about her fear and confusion, but he was confused too, trying to piece together what had happened, remembering only the rapidly approaching UPS truck and the sensation of splashing water. He realized, from the scene in which he had come into, or back into, consciousness, that he had been perceived as dead, but he couldn't quite wrap his thinking around the fact 
that he had just come from his own funeral. He touched around his neck and felt the sloppy sewing job that was holding his head in place, the line itself slick, the bumps of the sutures bothering his fingertips. Was my head? He stopped. Gloria nodded, completely severed. Ouch, Ted said. Gloria's and the children's faces showed concern. Just the idea of it, Ted said. I had to identify your head at the morgue, Gloria said, the recent memory of it beginning to overwhelm her. She started to cry again, but spoke through her tears. You were in a metal bowl, and I had to look at you on a TV, and your eyes were closed, but your mouth was open like you were trying to say something, and, and, and... Ted embraced Gloria. I'm okay now. I don't know how, but I'm okay. He looked at the children, touched their heads, perhaps to see if they were securely fastened. Daddy? Emily cried. I don't know, sweetie. All I know is that I'm alive. Well, I'm not dead anyway. He looked at the sky, at the leaves of a nearby eucalyptus tree, at the clouds. It all seemed so beautiful. Perry squeezed his father's waist. Ted hugged him, and the boy reached out to touch the stitches. Does it look awful? Ted asked. He was looking at Perry, but he was asking all of them. It looks terrible, Gloria said. Does it hurt? Perry asked. Ted shook his head. No, I can't even feel it. Ted shook his head again, but not in response to any question, but to clear his brain. He wanted to remember the time he was supposedly dead, being in the bowl, as his wife described, having his head sewn on or his mouth sewn shut. But all he could recall was that splashing sensation. Not a bright light, not an authoritative voice beckoning him seductively toward it. He wanted to know if he had been close to knowing any secrets or simply knowing more. Emily was trembling now. Her eyes were saucers. Are you a ghost, Daddy? Ted considered the question and wanted to say no, but the fact of the matter was that he didn't know. During his silence, Perry became anxious and began to chant, Daddy's a ghost! Daddy's a ghost! Ted touched Emily's hair and marveled at the softness of it, feeling that he was taking forever to admire its texture, but knowing that only a fraction of a second had slipped by, and said, No, I don't think I'm a ghost, honey. The noise of the riot came to them again, like the crash of a wave at the beach, and they huddled closer. Come on, let's get home. Clouds gathered to the west, over the ocean. They walked several blocks, trying to hurry, but not moving very fast. They came to a payphone outside a defunct garden shop. Ted stood in the booth and called a taxi, while Gloria tried to calm the children. It was a hot day, 
but Ted didn't feel it. Hey, that's all, folks. Uh, that brings to a close episode five of uh, It's in a Book. Another one bites the dust. Uh, I am very, very happy, uh, if you're listening right now, that you chose to do so. And, uh, and uh, just a few notes. Uh, my wife, who read for us in the last episode, requested that I point out that... Uh, her, her breathlessness, which may or may not have conveyed uh, through the recording, was uh, due to that she was nine months pregnant. Uh, she, she did a, an admirable job of, of breathlessly reading uh, from the, uh, the great novel, <laughs> A Million Little Pieces. Um, and uh, she shortly thereafter did, did an incredible job of delivering our our uh, first daughter, our last child, we believe, we hope, uh, <laughs> um, uh, and the, the sister of, of Holden. Her name is Catherine Holmes Rouse, and we're very excited to, uh, to have her join our little family of readers. And, uh, um, you know, we, we've just spent the, the past uh, several, several days uh, getting used to having her in the house, and uh, Everyone seems to be holding up uh, fine, uh, especially Holden. We were really worried about him, but he's he's just making a, a great little big brother. He's really impressing this, and, uh, and we're proud of him. So, um, what else? Um, let's see. If you uh, see one of my business cards around town in, uh, in a coffee shop or something like that, grab it, grab it, pick it up, and... Uh, Respond to the email address there on it, uh, or not respond to it, but initiate an email and request an interview. I'd love to talk to you about books, uh, what you're reading, uh, what you like to read. Um, I don't know, maybe maybe you think books suck and, and you'd like to tell me about that. So, uh, so do it, do it, do it. As ever, you can find us on the web at www.theoakcityreads.com or oakcityreads.com as well you can find us on itunes by searching it's in a book podcast uh we'll see you soon bye-bye Hefty smart. Hold on. Can you ask me again what you asked me the other day? No. Please. No. Just say it one time so we can go upstairs. Why? Why what? (laughs) Why what? I'm with that robot guy. You can play with that robot guy if you ask me again what you asked me the other day. Okay. Ask me what you asked me the other day. Mm. Why you laugh at your own jokes? I don't know. I just did it again, though. All right. Here, get the robot guy.
Let's go. Say bye-bye.